Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. All right, so one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite Christmas stories is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and I just found out there are 135 different versions of this. Uh, So I'm sure you've seen some of these. Um, But one of the most uh, memorable scenes, or multiple scenes, but parts of this story in The Christmas Carol are when Ebenezer Scrooge, the guy who says bah humbug, the guy who hates Christmas, is visited by these three ghosts, right? And the first ghost is the ghost of Christmas past, which you see here. The second ghost is the ghost of Christmas present. Uh, this looks like a CGI version of uh, the ghost um, having a lot of fun, big jolly guy. And then finally, the ghost of Christmas future. And this is the most ominous. It's the darkest. And of course, it's through these visits and the tours that Ebenezer goes on with these ghosts that his perspective is totally changed on what Christmas is about, who it's for, et cetera, et cetera. It radically changes his life. He turns from this grumpy old man into this joyful and generous man. Now, our line of the Apostles' Creed is about the future, right? Or is it? So it's typically when we think of resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, we think of only the future. But it's actually very relevant and has much more to do with the past and the present than I think we've imagined. It has a lot to do with where we have been, where we are, where we are now, and where we are going in the future. So we're going to do this little tour, past, present, and future, and see what the resurrection of the dead, or the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting have to do with these things. So let's start past. Where have we been? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is how we began our semester. The very first line of the creed starts with the very beginning of time, the creation of the universe. God spoke the world into being. You'll probably remember that creation was called good. But the pinnacle of creation, humans, male and female, were made in the image of, and likeness of God. And therefore, they were called not just good, but very good. Now, I want you to grasp this point because it's not always clear. Although there was no moral defect in creation or its creatures, it was not all that it was meant to be. And I'm talking pre-fall, before sin entered the world, creation had not met its full potential. Just like we um, wouldn't uh, miscredit or, or blame a small child for being not all that it could be, right? Uh, it's about its maturity. It's not yet attained maturity. It's not yet attained adulthood in the same way creation had not met its full potential. A lot of times when we talk about heaven, a lot of times when we talk about the afterlife, everyone talks about going to paradise or going back to the garden, the way things were. When we think about the future, the life everlasting and the resurrection, 
creation is so important to understand. I, I skipped the slide earlier. This is a tree. It's in, in Africa, and it's actually uh, termed the tree of life. I'm sure there's a scientific name for it. Uh, but the tree of life indicates in the garden that there is a, a greater potential, a greater purpose for mankind and for the whole cosmos than it has reached. But as we know, the story is that sin enters the world, this virus, this infection, and it affects everything, even creation that uh, was not responsible for it has been affected by the decisions of men and women as they sin and they bring this cancer of sin into the world. So how much more can we understand if creation, even before sin entered the world, was not all that it could be or would be, that sin becomes an obstacle to that ultimate end. Man and women, men and women, humans were made to be in the presence of God forever. They're made to eat of the tree of life and be with God forever. But because of sin, instead of being in the presence of God, they were banished and separated from the presence of God. So we're still talking about the past, but let's jump ahead to something that happened in the climax of history. The climax of the whole story of the cosmos is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus rose from the dead and emerged out of that tomb on that Sunday outside of Jerusalem, he was the first bud of springtime. It's a picture of a dogwood. I love the blooms and the buds and seeing those. It's the sign that winter is almost over. Spring is coming. When Jesus rose from the grave, that was the sign. Winter is coming to an end and spring is coming. This is the dawn of a new age. You see, men and women, humans, failed in reaching that full potential. But this man, Jesus, who was untainted by that virus of sin, came into the world, and what he did is he made it possible again for creation, for God's creatures to reach their ultimate goal, which is to be in the presence of God forever. Okay, we're still talking about the the past, right? Maybe all of this semester, it seems like we're talking about things that happened in the past, but this is not just historical trivia. Yes, it did happen 2,000 years ago, but it happened to you. Right now, in the present, you are resurrected. All right, How, where am I getting that? Let's look at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Let's unpack this line by line. If then you have been raised with Christ, by faith, We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, as we saw last time in Colossians 2.13, Christ forgave us, canceled the record of that sin, and made us alive with him. 
when he rose from the grave, so did we. Spiritually, what this means for us Christians at this very moment, you are alive in Jesus. Not partially, not thawing out of your state of deadness, but you are alive right now as surely as Christ rose from the dead spiritually you have been raised you are no longer dead in your trespasses and your sins but you are alive this very moment and there are implications for this life so seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god we have a a new king he's in heaven he's seated at the right hand of the father meaning he has all authority and all power in the universe. We have new loyalty to him, not any king or president or ruler on this earth, but to our King Jesus. We have new citizenship, not in any country on this earth, but in heaven. And we have new responsibility because of these things. And then it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Wait, does this mean that I can't like think about what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow or after we get off the Zoom call, immediately work on that uh, group project or think about my, my boyfriend or girlfriend. No, it means that we live our life on this earth. The busy commotion of the day and day, working, relating, studying, relaxing, playing. We do all of these things as those whose hearts are not set on these things as ultimate and ends in and of themselves, but as those whose hearts are set ultimately on God. Why should we do this? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our very lives, the essence of our beings, our soul's identity is hidden with Christ and God. It's secure, just like an infant is secure in his father's or his mother's arms. It's, our hearts are secure with Christ in God. And furthermore, our hearts are captivated, enraptured, in love with Christ in God. Basically, what I'm trying to say is we love God now, and God loves us. And we love God because he first loved us. And we are secure just like an infant in his father's arms is secure. This is where we are. This is our identity. This is our most um, essential part of ourselves. Is not in the world, but in God. And yet we're still embodied. We are still here. We have analogies of this kind of duality or tension all around us. Uh, this is a picture of a, a watch that my wife actually has. It was given to her after she spent a semester in Montecito, California, a place that she would call paradise. One of the most beautiful places she's ever been. And she got this and she said it to the California time zone, and then the bottom one she set to the Boston time zone. So she would always remember that experience, that place. Maybe some of you have had an experience studying abroad, and maybe when you came back from Spain or Italy or wherever it was, you would say, my heart 
is still in Spain. Maybe you've had a loved one leave and and maybe deploy overseas. And it's been so hard because your heart is with them. You're in two places at once. Now, these are geographic and and, and definitely uh, personal or human examples. But the distinction between this world that we're in now and the world to come is also one of place and time, but it's of a spiritual and otherworldly dimension. I want to get into this a little further using a chart. This is scanned from an old book uh, written in 1930 uh, by a Dutch theologian who uh, taught at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. And what he said is that we have this scheme in our minds of the life to come. And it's a line. And the first part is where we're now, this age or world, this time that we're in. And then that line in the middle is Jesus coming back and the beginning of the age or the world to come, meaning the, the afterlife, the, 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 the eternal life that we're spending with God in heaven. And he actually says that this is not in the Bible, that this is not actually the way Paul especially speaks of um, how the afterlife is to be conceived. And he presents us a new way of thinking about this. It's not actually new. It's straight from Scripture. It's straight from Colossians 3. Now, what you'll see in this chart, this bottom line still represents this time, this age, this world where we are on earth right now. And then the top line represents the world to come, meaning that life everlasting, eternal life. But you see these two vertical lines. And this first one is the resurrection of Christ. And the second one is the second coming of Christ. Now, what I want to point out to you is that these two lines that in the linear original scheme were just meeting in a linear one-dimensional way now are brought into two dimensions and they're overlapping. Which means that right now, as Christians, we live in two places at once. Our souls are hidden with Christ and God. Our identity and principle spiritually is in eternity right now. But our lives on earth are still lives just like everyone else, right? We, we have to eat. We have to live. We're still embodied. And so what this has been called in a sort of a pithy way is the already and the not yet. There's stuff that's already true about this because of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ made it possible for us to access heaven itself, to be in the presence of God spiritually. And one day in the second coming, we will be embodied souls with God. You can tell we're already jumping ahead to the future. Where are we going? The fourth verse says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What has been true of us spiritually will be made true of us bodily. When Jesus comes back, the one through, through whom and in whom we have life eternally, we will be made like Jesus 
But there's more. It won't just be a change in our selves and our bodies. It'll be a change of the entire cosmos, all of creation. If you read in, in Revelation, he says, there is a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. In other words, Christians and the entire cosmos will be changed and transformed and finally reach maturity and the potential that it was always meant to have. The design very from the beginning is now going to be achieved in the future. This is something to get excited about. In John 16, we see Jesus speaking to his disciples and he talks to them and he says, I'm going to go away for a little while and you're going to cry. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to come back and your sorrow will turn into joy. And of course, we know this was the night before Jesus went to die and they were sad. Yes, they cried. Their, their savior uh, who they were following, the Messiah had died. They were sorrowful, but then when he rose again and they saw him face to face, their sorrow turned into joy. And for us, we're sort of in that middle place of Saturday, right? Between Good Friday and Easter, we're, we're sorrowful, but we know the resurrection is going to happen. That's the big difference for us. We know that our sorrow is going to turn to joy because one day Jesus is coming back. The analogy he gives is of a, a woman giving birth. She has sorrow because of the pain of childbirth. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. This is true. That's so true. Uh, I've watched it before my eyes. The sorrow, the tears turn into joy. This is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. Another thing that's going to happen in the future is that we're going to a place where our bodies will be recreated. Now, where do we get this? Well, it's not just from this verse, but this verse gives us a good indication. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, all who belong to Christ. Now, if I could get into the context of it, this entire chapter is on the resurrection. And he's saying Christ was the first one, but then all believers will be made like Jesus, including our bodies. Now, what could that mean? Um, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, well, what could Jesus do? What was Jesus's body like? He was recognizable even with his scars. Jesus ate and drank. So too, we will eat and drink. But Jesus could all of a sudden appear in places out of nowhere. He could pass through walls and locked doors. There's a good possibility that our uh, understanding of the dimensional, you know, like space-time continuum could be completely uh, opened up to new possibilities where we can do things then that we can't do now. But we will also, just as Jesus in his resurrected body will never die, so too we will never die. And this is a little bit different than Jesus. Jesus could never sin, and he did not sin. But now we know that we can sin, and we do sin regularly. 
But in this glorified state, when we're resurrected, we cannot sin. We don't have the desire to. We don't have the temptation to. We cannot. Sin is completely erased from the picture. But it's more than just individuals. It's all of creation. The the seed that was planted in creation long, long ago is going to become a full-bloom flower. It's going to come into full maturity. It's said that the resurrection is the most creation-affirming act of history. That our bodies are good, in other words. That the material world is good. And this is one thing that's unique to Christianity. But relationally, we will be with our beloved, the one for whom our heart longs. We'll be with them forever. Now, wedding ceremonies can be magnificent, but a good wedding reception is gold. Absolutely memorable because not only is it special and formal and ceremonious, but it's fun. It's celebratory. There's food, drink, music, dancing, talking, till on and on until the bride and the groom go. This is what we're heading towards. In in Revelation, it talks about uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lamb who is Jesus. And who is he getting married to? What are we celebrating? Well, he's getting married to the bride. And who is the bride? The church. The Holy Catholic Church is the bride. It's our wedding feast. And what a party it's going to be. It's actually much like this time of being in between, right? Um, Engagement, uh, being engaged, even though it's great to propose and have somebody say yes to you, it is terrible. It is not fun. You're waiting. You're waiting impatiently. And if you'll remember when you were a kid, waiting for Christmas Day was so hard, right? All you want is just to see the, the presents under the tree and to rip them open and to, you know, do all the things that your family does on Christmas. You just want it to come. Fleming Rutledge talks about this time of Advent, the season in which we are in, waiting for Christmas as being a great analogy for us to think through this time in life as we are waiting the second coming of Jesus. She says the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension. Remember that duality, already not yet, with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. Do you feel that tension? I do. I live in that. And the already and the not yet, that is who we are as Christians. But thankfully, that tension will be resolved one day when Jesus comes back. We don't know when. We can't count down the dates on a calendar like we did as a kid, counting down the days to Christmas. But we know that Jesus promised, our beloved, he promised, he says, look, behold, In other words, watch, wait, get ready. I am coming soon. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would just give us this expectation, this hope, this even childlike uh, readiness and waiting, counting down the hours on the edge of our seat, waiting for you to come back. Because we know that this world is broken and you are going to heal it. We know that our own hearts are sick and you're going to make us well. Lord, we ask that this day would come soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.